Welcome to the first episode of the Youth Fusion International Law Podcast Series. My name is Gabriela Meyer-Tulic. I'm a program assistant at Youth Fusion and a research assistant at PNND, Parliamentarians for Nuclear Nonproliferation and Disarmament. As an advocate in the field of nuclear nonproliferation and disarmament, one often comes across legal references, such as the obligation for disarmament in Article 6 of the NPT, the Nonproliferation Treaty. Sometimes it can be challenging to understand how the treaties and agreements on nuclear weapons work together in the system of international law and why it is so difficult to enforce them. With this in mind, this podcast was established to help anyone interested in finding out more about nuclear weapons issues and how they are regulated in international law by providing an overview of the status of international law connected to nuclear weapons. We invited a number of experts on these questions to share their knowledge with us, and we hope that what you learn here will help you to become better at using relevant and applicable international law in your work, and thus make you more effective in your nuclear nonproliferation and disarmament activism. We designed a series in particular with those in mind who have no previous knowledge about international law. This is why we are going to learn some of the basic principles of international law in this first episode. Everything we learn today will be our foundation for the upcoming episodes where we will discuss whether it is legal to threaten or use nuclear weapons and if so, when, and we will also explore legal questions related to the possession of nuclear weapons and the disarmament obligation. And it's my great pleasure to introduce our expert for this episode, Nick Grief, uh, who is an Emeritus uh, Professor of Law um, at the University of Kent with a specialization in international law and human rights. Uh, he has a very impressive resume connected to our topic today and I'd like to highlight a couple of facts about him. Um, so he was a member of the legal team representing the Marshall Islands before the ICJ in 2016 uh, concerning the obligation to negotiate in good faith towards nuclear disarmament. And he was also closely involved in the World Court Project as um, the author of a legal memorandum entitled World Court Project on Nuclear Weapons and International Law, uh, which then led to the ICJ's 1996 um, advisory opinion on the legality and threats of use of nuclear weapons. So uh, once again, welcome, Nick. Uh, it's a great honor to have you join us today. Thank you very much indeed, Gabrielle. Good to be here. Thank you. <laughs> So, um, yeah, let's just start with a very basic um, question, uh, which is, what is international law? How can we understand it? Maybe, especially for people who mainly deal with domestic law. Sure. So uh, I think the best way of thinking about international law is that it's the body of principles and rules that determine the rights and duties of states and other subjects of international law. Uh, so in, this, in particular, international law governs the relationship between states. But whilst states are the main subjects of international law, the main entities possessing international rights and duties, they're not the only ones. Uh, other subjects of international law include uh, international organisations, um, corporations, individuals, and of course, peoples as well. But, but I think the, the differences between uh, international law and municipal law uh, can be highlighted in, in this way. Um, domestic law, as many people listening and watching will, will be aware, um, 
operates in a kind of vertical legal order. Uh, mm. The state is sovereign. The state's government and courts defer to the national legislature. Uh, and what it boils down to is the state can compel us, the citizens, to obey the law and punish them, us, if it doesn't. Sorry, mm -hmm. if they don't. Yeah. Um, international law, in contrast, has no legislature. Uh, there's no international police force uh, or even a compulsory system of courts before which states can be compelled to appear. Um, international law is uh, a horizontal system of legal norms applying to and within the international community. And that international community is a community of, at least in theory, equally sovereign states. So sovereignty and consent seriously constrain the operation of international law norms. So um, you say there is basically um, legal sovereignty and inequality for all states in theory. Um, yeah, could you um, could you say any um, if there's any exception to that kind of equality and sovereignty? Yeah, uh, well, there, there there is an exception. Um, The UN Charter in Article 2, Paragraph 1, provides that the United Nations is based on the principle of the sovereign equality of all its members, all its member states. But the UN Security Council, one of the principal organs of the UN, responsible, primarily responsible for uh, the maintenance of international peace and security, the, the Security Council's 15 members include five permanent members. China, France, Russia, the UK, and the USA. And of course, they are five of the nine nuclear armed states. And that concept of permanent membership for those five states reflects the political and military reality that prevailed at the end of World War II. And the, the, the point is this, that each of those permanent members has a veto concerning what the Charter calls non-procedural matters, i.e. matters of substance, matters to do with international peace and security. And to be adopted, security resolutions on such matters need nine affirmative votes out of the 15 and no veto. So mm -hmm. any one of the, the five permanent members can veto a Security Council resolution on a matter of substance. And that to me, means that it's virtually impossible for the Security Council to meaningfully regulate nuclear weapons. So that's a serious exception uh, to the, the principle of the sovereign equality of all states. And such a resolution, what could it do in theory if there was no veto? If there were no veto, well, uh, I... I suppose in theory, the Security Council um, could adopt resolutions that, uh, that, that, that regulated the possession, the use, the threatened use of nuclear weapons. Having said that, um, it, it, it would be very difficult. It's, dif it's difficult for me to see how um, meaningful police action, if you can call it that, could mm. be taken against nuclear armed countries hmm. even if we didn't have a veto okay interesting um 
Okay, so um, let's move on to the next question, which is, um, so international law is kind of a system of different areas and um, et cetera. So it kind of, there's international humanitarian law, human rights law, um, et cetera. Um, which, um, what are the different, what are those kinds of um, laws and how, um, how are they relevant um, for analyzing nuclear weapons issues? Um, and how do I kind of know which one to apply in what's, what circumstance? That's, that's a very good question. Um, yeah. Okay. The main body of international law that is relevant to nuclear weapons is international humanitarian law, which is part of the law of armed conflict. Uh, international humanitarian law, or IHL as it's abbreviated, is, is designed to spare uh, civilians and other non-combatants from the effects of hostilities, of armed conflict. Uh, so, for example, the, the principle of distinction, the principle that uh, a distinction must always be made between combatants and non-combatants, between civilians and military objectives, uh, the principle that prohibits the use of weapons uh, which would cause unnecessary suffering to combatants or that would cause widespread long-term and severe damage to the environment. These are cardinal principles of international humanitarian law that clearly are relevant to nuclear weapons. But international human rights law is, is also relevant. And international human rights law continues to apply in time of war, in time of, of armed conflict, unless it excluded or restricted pursuant to a derogation clause. Some international human rights uh, are non-derogable though, they cannot be derogated from. And one, of the, one example of those is the, uh, non, uh, one example of the non-derogable uh, human rights is the prohibition of torture. That can never be derogated from in any circumstances. So it, 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 it's a fallacy to think that uh, IHL applies in time of war and human rights law applies in time of peace. The two spheres of law are complementary. They're not mutually exclusive. Let me give you an example. When considering whether there has been a violation of the right to life during armed conflict, IHL is likely to be our primary source uh, of reference, the, the lens through which we analyze that violation. Um, and so rules of IHL are likely to be relevant for the interpretation and application of Article 6 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which enshrines the right to life and provides that no one shall be arbitrarily deprived of their life. Now, the use of lethal force consistent with IHL is unlikely to be arbitrary. I won't say it will never be arbitrary, but it's unlikely to be arbitrary. But a violation of IHL, such as targeting civilian or risking the lives of civilians by failing to apply the principles of precaution or, uh, and proportionality, such a violation of IHL would also violate the right to life under international human rights law. And let me just add that um, General Comment 36 on the right to life that was adopted by the UN Human Rights Committee 
in 2018 is very good on this, and specifically paragraph 64 is very good on this. Okay, so um, we've, um, we've briefly mentioned um, one um, source of international law at the beginning already um, in the introduction, which is the 1996 advisory opinion um, mm. by the International Court of Justice. I just um, want to ask in this context, um, can you kind of explain the difference between hard law and soft law? Because I think if I'm correct, the 96 advisory opinion is a source of soft law. So maybe you could um, say something about that. Yes, of course. Yeah, uh, soft law essentially means norms that are not legally binding, but which nonetheless form part of the broader normative context that shapes our expectations of how states should behave. Mm -hmm. um, and soft law is used, for example, to bolster support for conclusions that ultimately depend on or rest on other binding rules. So, for example, most General Assembly resolutions, UN General Assembly resolutions, uh, would fall into the category of soft law. They're, they're statements of policy, they're recommendations to governments. The General Assembly resolutions do not normally of themselves have uh, legally binding force. Hmm. Um, other examples of soft law, I suppose a leading example would be the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, soft law, but the source of many universal and regional human rights treaties. As for the advisory opinion, 1996, it's not binding as such, it's, it's advisory, as the title indicates. But I, I've always seen it as a most authoritative ruling mm. by the principal judicial organ of the UN, the International mm. Court of Justice, the World Court. And unanimously adopted conclusions in the advisory opinion are particularly authoritative. Uh, for example, the, the final point of the court's formal ruling, declaring that there is an obligation to pursue in good faith and conclude negotiations leading to nuclear disarmament. And that final point of the formal ruling reflects Article 6 of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and general international law. Mm -hmm. So soft law, yes, but most authoritative. And then hard law is, for example, a treaty? Could that be? Yeah, hard law, legal norms that are binding. Mm -hmm. um, norms in, in, in treaties, norms in uh, norms of customary international law, uh, general principles of, of law as well. Yeah. Okay, so for example, the NPT um, would be hard law for all the state parties of the NPT? Absolutely. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yes. Yes. Treat, uh, states which are parties to a treaty uh, are, are duty bound to perform that treaty in good faith. The, the, the fundamental, the essential rule of the law of treaties, uh, known by a Latin maxim, pacta sunt servanda, treaties are binding on the parties to them and mm -hmm. must be performed by them in good faith. Okay. Well, um... Can it be the case that a state is also obliged to adhere to norms, for example, in a treaty, which it never signed on to? Yeah, um, treaties can codify uh, customary international law, can, can express customary rules in written form. Uh, and treaties can not merely codify pre-existing custom, 
they can even generate new customary rules. Mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 the way in which that can happen is set out by the, Court of, the International Court of Justice in the North Sea Continental Shelf cases. Um, and in the advisory opinion, the court said that the two cardinal principles of IHL, uh, the principle of distinction and the prohibition against causing unnecessary suffering to combatants, are binding on states, even on states, which are not parties to the treaties that enshrine those principles. So yes, a state can be required to comply with legal norms uh, that are included in a treaty, even if the state is not a party to that treaty, even if the state has never signed that mm. treaty. And that's if it is a custom, right, in that the treaty is basically yeah, show like codifying. But what is a custom? What what do you what can we understand by the term? <laughs> Good question. Um, yeah, uh, in international law, a, a, a custom, the rule of custom international law is to, to quote the uh, statute of the International Court of Justice, a general practice that is accepted as law. So those are your two essential components of mm -hmm. uh, of, of a custom in international law: a general practice accepted as law. Mm -hmm. Any official acts may count as practice, state practice, legislation, court decisions, statements that state representatives make in the UN or other fora, for example. Um, and there's no set number or proportion of states that must conform to a pattern of behavior for it to be recognized as a general practice. Uh, mm -hmm. But it is necessary for those states whose interests are particularly affected by the rule to participate in the practice. Uh, and an example that's often given is this, that a rule concerning the use of outer space couldn't be made or wouldn't normally be made without the participation of states that are active in space exploration, because it's their interests that are particularly affected in that context. But there's an interesting question here. How do we determine which states' interests are particularly affected, especially when it comes to things like the legal status of nuclear weapons? Mm -hmm. um, to me, the, the states whose interests are particularly affected when we're talking about customary rules regarding nuclear weapons are not just the nine nuclear armed states. Because nuclear weapons are, as we as we know, an existential threat to every state and to the Earth as a whole. So for me, uh, it isn't just the practice of the of the nuclear armed states that's critical here. It it's the behaviour of all 190 plus states that make up the international community. That's practice. The other element that is required for custom is opinio juris. The belief that something that the that the rule is 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 legally binding uh, the belief that the practice is required by law you see there are all sorts of consistent practices in international relations but they're not all rules of law for example it's a, it's a trite example but the practice of rolling out the red carpet when a, a head of state visits that's not a rule of law it's a consistent practice, but it's not it's a rule protocol, of law. protocol, right? Um, yeah. Uh, okay. To form a, a customary rule, the general practice must be 
quote, accepted as law. There must be opinio juris. Examples of customary rules, the 12 mile territorial sea limit, Mm -hmm. the rule that every state has complete and exclusive sovereignty over the airspace above its territory. And then highly relevant to uh, nuclear weapons, fundamental rules of international humanitarian law, Um, the the requirement to distinguish between combatants and non-combatants. These are very good examples of, of rules rules of custom where you have the general practice and the uh, the opinion juris, the, the sense that the practice is required by law. So um, okay if if this means so like there are two requirements for custom so there's a long-term practice and then there's this sense of responsibility that we break a law if um, we don't oblige with the custom. What about the use of nuclear weapons because since the end of the world war no state has used nuclear weapons mm-hmm. um even though there were like a lot of um cases in history where the us would have probably profited for example from uh, by using nuclear weapons in conflicts but they chose not to do it um can we say that the non-use of nuclear weapons constitutes a custom that's a, that's a really good question gabby um let, let's break it down and analyze if we can uh we, on the face of it, we've got a consistent practice uh, of non-use of nuclear weapons. And that practice of non-use is bolstered, it seems to me, by General Assembly resolutions. Mm -hmm. And of course, now the the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. That bolsters, that helps to bolster that consistent practice of non-use. But is that practice accepted as law? Well, not if you ask the nuclear armed states and their allies. They they certainly wouldn't accept that consistent practice as law, opinio juris. Um, But it just seems to me that since we're dealing with nuclear weapons, which are an an existential threat Mm -hmm. to humankind and, and the earth as a whole, then maybe we should regard nuclear weapons, or or rather maybe we should we should see nuclear weapons differently. And maybe we should regard the nuclear armed states if they were to use nuclear weapons as violating the customary prohibition rather than thwarting its establishment. That would raise the question, well, couldn't the nuclear armed states be considered as what are called persistent objectors? The the persistent objector principle is the principle that, that says that if a state uh, consistently makes known its its opposition to a rule of custom w- when that rule is is emerging mm-hmm. before it's crystallized as a rule so consistently and unequivocally manifests its opposition to that rule it won't be bound by that rule when it does emerge could we not consider the nuclear armed states as mm-hmm. persistent objectors to any with, such with uh, their Policies of recurrence as well, maybe. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. My, my view on that, and I don't know, well, I'm sure it wouldn't be shared universally, but my view is that it would be unconscionable to allow the persistent objector principle to apply to nuclear weapons, which, as we've said, are an existential threat to humanity. Mm. Controversial, but arguable, I, I would suggest. Interesting. 
Okay, so we can't really establish at this point if there is a custom, but um, yeah, interesting question. Um, let's move on to um, this question, which is what is meant by positive or negative obligation um, mm. in international law? Okay, yeah. Uh, well, put simply, a positive obligation is, is an obligation to do something, mm -hmm. whereas a negative obligation is an obligation not to do something, to refrain from doing something. Mm -hmm. And good examples can be found in the NPT, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Article 1 uh, enshrines uh, a negative obligation, and I'll read part of Article 1. Each nuclear, nuclear weapon state party to the treaty undertakes not to transfer to any recipient whatsoever nuclear weapons or other nuclear explosive devices. Negative obligation, undertakes not to transfer. Then we have Article 6, the well-known Article 6, which is the positive obligation. Each of the parties to the treaty, note not just the nuclear armed states, parties, mm -hmm. the nuclear weapon states, each of the parties to the treaty undertakes to pursue negotiations in good faith. Mm -hmm. on effective measures relating to cessation of the nuclear arms race and to nuclear disarmament. So in the NPT, you've got both kinds of obligations. And, and the same is true of the TPNW, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Um, mm -hmm. And it's positive that that treaty's positive obligations are particularly interesting. Article 7, for example, requires each state party to the TPNW to cooperate with other states' parties to facilitate that treaty's implementation. And that duty to cooperate is an established principle of international law. It's enshrined in the UN Charter in Article 1, Paragraph 3. Uh, one of the purposes of the UN is, and I quote, to achieve international cooperation in solving international problems of an economic, social, cultural, or humanitarian character and in promoting and encouraging respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms for all without distinction. So that duty to cooperate that is such an important part of the TPNW has been there in the UN Charter all along. Mm -hmm. And can I just add that uh, whilst we're talking about positive and negative obligations, some mm -hmm. obligations of international law are what are called obligations erga omnes. They're owed to all states erga omnes, okay. um, not just to another state bilaterally, they're owed to all states. Uh, and, and obligations erga omnes would include the fundamental principles of IHL and some fundamental rights, to name but a few. Okay. We already talked a little bit about um, possible yeah, violation and um, yeah, how we could um, deal with them internationally um, with through the UN Security Council in the beginning. I just want to ask, um, how could we um, um, prosecute individuals uh, through international law and what kind of tools would we have for that? Because they are also subjects. Sure, in, indeed. And, and one of the most important legacies of the Nuremberg Tribunal and its charter uh, at the end of the Second World War uh, is, was to establish the principle of individual responsibility mm -hmm. for war crimes, crimes against humanity, and crimes against peace, which we know now as the crime of aggression. Uh, under the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, the ICC has jurisdiction over individuals who commit 
war crimes. And war crimes are essentially very serious violations of international humanitarian law. Mm-hmm. Now, although the Rome Statute doesn't criminalise or penalise the use of nuclear weapons as such, it does contain provisions which could certainly apply to nuclear weapons, like uh, Article 8, Paragraph 2, Subparagraph B4, which enshrines the war crime of causing excessive incidental civilian death, injury or damage. So the Rome Statute enshrines this this principle of individual responsibility for for war crimes and other uh, serious crimes like crimes against humanity. Um, Of course, war criminals can also be tried in domestic courts Mm -hmm. if the relevant domestic law allows this. Uh, In the UK, for example, the war crimes provisions of the Rome Statute have been incorporated into domestic law by the uh, International Criminal Court Act of 2001, a domestic statute. Um, so, yeah, uh, individual responsibility, a legacy of Nuremberg, very much part mm-hmm. of the landscape of international law and international criminal law in particular today. Okay, well, we've already mentioned a lot of different sources um, of international like treaties um, or even case law a little bit. Um, so could you maybe say a little bit about what kind of sources we have in international law and then also how we know which one applies when and if there's like a hierarchy to it, some principles that we could um, look at when we apply this law? Sure. Um, we've mentioned some of these sources already in, in, in our conversation. Um, the starting point is for, for when we're talking about the sources of international law is usually Article 38, Paragraph one of the statute of the ICJ. It's, it, it's, it's often regarded as an authoritative statement of the sources of international law. I prefer to think of it as the starting point rather than the authoritative statement. But it, it, it lists sources, uh, in particular treaties, uh, customary international law, which we've talked about, and uh, general principles of law. Uh, for example, rules of natural justice, doctrines such as the clean hands principle, the idea that someone who's breached their own obligations under an agreement cannot ask a court to enforce that agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, treaties and customary international law are the main sources of international law. Um, hierarchy, I don't think there is a formal hierarchy uh, of sources. Customary international law can often fill in gaps that treaties leave. Treaties, as we've heard, can codify custom, can enshrine a customary rule in written form, but still no formal hierarchy. The only exception I would underline is uh, the concept of just cogens. Just cogens, otherwise known as peremptory norms Mm -hmm. of general international law, from which no derogation is permitted. These are the supreme rules of international law, the absolute rules of international law, and they're relatively few. And people disagree about what we should put into the category of cogens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would include in the category the prohibition of aggression, 
uh, the crime of genocide, the prohibition of genocide, the prohibition of slavery and of torture, the, self, the principle of the self-determination of peoples, uh, and the fundamental rules of international humanitarian law. And so to the extent that if, if there is a hierarchy, Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure that there is, but the only thing we could say is that these rules of just cogens are at the top, because as the law of treaties says, uh, a treaty which at the time of its conclusion conflicts with just cogens is void. Mm. So these rules of just cogens are the supreme rules. They, they prevail uh, not only over ordinary customary rules, but over rules in treaties and indeed treaties themselves. And isn't there also this principle of a special rule would overrule a general one? Or, yeah, um, let's specialis. Yeah, yeah, sure. That's a, that's and, a good point. That's and a, a new point. rule would overrule an, an old one? I guess. Absolutely, yes, yes, yes. So when we go back to treaties, there are two different forms in which they can be concluded, a simplified and a full form of negotiation. Could you say something about those two um, ways of concluding treaties and what this could yeah. mean for someone who didn't yeah, ratify a treaty? Sure. Uh, the more important of those two forms is, is, is the second. The uh, most important treaties today would be subject to ratification, would require ratification by a state in order for that state to become a party. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, typically a state would, would sign such a treaty as a step towards expressing its consent to be bound. The signature alone mm -hmm. would not be an expression of consent to be bound. That signature would need to be followed up by ratification. Now, under the law of treaties, a treaty doesn't uh, create rights or obligations for a third state without its consent. So if a state isn't a party to a treaty, it's not bound by that treaty. Now, as we've heard, there are kind of exceptions, one being where the treaty codifies rules of custom, although I'm not sure that really is an exception since the source of that obligation is the customary rule, not the treaty as mm -hmm. such. And I think I mentioned earlier, the ICJ in its advisory opinion gave the example of the cardinal principles of IHL that bind even those states that aren't parties to the treaties mm -hmm. that en enshrine those, uh, those principles. But as for the implications of, for a state which, have, which has signed a treaty but not ratified it, um, I would say that a that a state that has signed a treaty that is subject to ratification, but which has not yet ratified it, has to refrain from acts which would defeat the treaty's object and purpose. Mm -hmm. It mustn't do anything. The state mustn't do anything which would invalidate the basic purpose of the treaty, unless and until the state has made it clear that it doesn't intend to become a party to mm -hmm. ratify. Now, Saying that the state must not do anything which would invalidate the basic purpose of the treaty is not the same as saying that the treaty is binding on the state in every respect. It's a, it's a very important, but mm -hmm. subtle but important difference because the state is not a party to that treaty until it ratifies. So merely signing it does not make it a party, but having signed it, that state must not do anything that would invalidate 
and undermine the, the very purpose of the treaty. Jesus means um, a state can negotiate, accept and authenticate a treaty, so it signs it. And then, as you were saying, um, ratification is that last step for treaties negotiated in full form. Um, yeah, interesting. That's right. I mean, the, 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 some treat, uh, treaties are often, uh, a, um, states can often become parties to treaties by accession. That's another way in which mm -hmm. a state can, okay. can, can join a treaty, if you like. And I, if memory serves, accession is the way in which a state would, would become a party to a treaty after the time for ratifying has expired, has, is over. Um, so for example, the, the example that comes to mind is when, when the United Kingdom joined the European communities in 1973, we did so by acceding to uh, the, the, the three treaties. Hmm. Okay. okay, wow. So um, I guess we've covered um, most of the questions that I have about just general international law. I'm, there's so much more that we could cover, um, but I think this will help us um, moving forward for the next episodes. But before we end this episode today, I just like to ask you something personal again, and which is, um, yeah, what has, yeah, what is motivating you in your work on nuclear disarmament? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you for asking that one. Um, I need to go back probably 40, 40 years. I was a young lecturer at the University of Exeter um, in the early 1980s. At the time, the UK had Polaris uh, submarines, the, 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 the submarines that carried the, the UK's nuclear deterrent, Trident's predecessor, if you like. And there were nuclear bases, US nuclear bases here in the UK, Greenham Common, for example, and elsewhere in Europe. And the, in 1982, 82, of course, uh, there was the Falklands-Malvinas conflict. Uh, and as I say, I was a young lecturer. I was, I was teaching international law. I had never studied international humanitarian law or the law of armed conflict in my own international law course as a student in the 1970s. Um, and I wasn't teaching it at that time. But the Falklands-Malvinas conflict prompted me to think about my Christian faith and war. Mm. Um, I read up about just war theory, and that led me to, to study the law of armed conflict, and especially international humanitarian law, uh, the Geneva Conventions, the additional protocols of 1977. And I started to uh, write about this and I began to be asked to give evidence in English courts and Welsh courts mm. about the legal status of nuclear weapons or as I saw it, that the illegality of nuclear weapons because by now I was convinced that nuclear weapons are illegal, mm. that there's no way in which they can be used consistently with the law of armed conflict, or indeed human rights, human rights law. So I began to be asked to give evidence uh, about the legality of nuclear weapons on behalf of people who, on grounds of conscience, were resisting the demand for the payment of income tax, uh, which would support defence and particularly nuclear weapons expenditure by the UK. And I, I did this more and more. 
And eventually, in the early 1990s, I decided that I wanted to be able to represent these, these people in court and argue their cases and not simply be an expert witness. So in the mid 1990s, I was called to the bar and most of, I've practiced occasionally and still do at the Bar of England and Wales. Most of my practice has been in relation to nuclear weapons in some way. And uh, you mentioned the Marshall Islands cases in, in mm -hmm. 2016. It was uh, a privilege and a delight to be part of the legal team that represented the Marshall Islands in the ICJ. I've retired now as an academic. I retired a couple of years ago, but after more than 40 years, my motivation is no less strong mm. than it was in those early years. In fact, I, I would have to say the, the war between Russia and Ukraine, the West, has only served to convince me that we have to rid the world of nuclear weapons. It's hardened my resolve to do what I can to help to achieve this. Mm -hmm. And I guess the advice that I would give to activists, young activists in particular, it is the same advice that has been given to me over the years. Along these lines, you, we may not be able to fix the world, mm. but let's do what we can to fix things in the world. Mm. But we also have to keep our eyes on, on that distant horizon. And I think also we should be realistic about what international law can achieve, about the limitations of international law as well as about its, as well as its potential. Wow, thank you so much. That's inspiring because even like little things will definitely make a difference. And I yeah. mean, you've done a lot in your career, so it's great to hear. So um, thank you so much again. Um, and it's been a, it's been a great pleasure. I, I hope it's I hope it's been helpful. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Oh, thank you so much. Um, and yeah, I'm looking forward to the next couple of episodes and I hope these um, yeah, frameworks that we've discussed today will help us with it. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this first episode of our Youth Fusion International Law Podcast series. We hope you learned something new today and we once again want to thank Dr. Nick Grief for taking the time to share some of the fundamentals of international law with us. Make sure to keep an eye out for the two upcoming episodes of this podcast series where we will discuss how the threat and use of nuclear weapons and the possession of nuclear weapons are regulated in international law. To keep up to date, you can follow us on our social media channels, subscribe to our newsletter or check out our website at www.youth-fusion.org. Thanks again for tuning in today. Stay safe, stay well and goodbye for now.